Somewhere in the middle of the movie Back to the Future 2, Marty, Doc Brown, and Einstein, Doc Brown's dog, expect to be returning to the year 1985 from the future. But things aren't quite how they had left them. Biff had become the most powerful person in town. Marty's dad had been killed, and Doc Brown had been committed to some sort of mental facility. Eventually, Marty makes his way back to Doc Brown's lab to try and figure out why everything has gone askew. By this point, Doc Brown has figured out what happened, and he exclaims, Obviously, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating this new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternate reality. Marty still doesn't understand. So Doc Brown goes on to explain by showing a timeline where, at some point in the past, an event happened, which created a skew in the timeline landing them in an alternate 1985. Marty and Doc Brown are the only two people unaffected by this skew, and are therefore the only people who are able to compare it to the real 1985. But, of course, I can't do justice to Doc Brown's explanation. So here it is. Obviously, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating this new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternate reality. English, Doc. Here, here, here. Let me illustrate. Imagine that this line represents time. Here's the present, 1985, future, past. Prior to this point in time, Somewhere in the past, the timeline skewed into this tangent, creating an alternate 1985. Alternate to you, me, and Einstein, but reality for everyone else. Do you ever feel like you're doing your best to follow the words and the character and the person of Christ, but people call you outside the lines, one who ignores tradition, a rebel, or a heretic. Are you? Or is it a question of competing realities? Perhaps this week is for you. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. This is the third week of Easter. That's right, we're not done yet. I want to just briefly mention a couple things before we move into the readings this week. First, I wanted to thank you all so much for the support after the release of the first episode. In an attempt to just get this podcast out there in the world, I've been doing a lot of social media stalking this week. So, I should assure you that I am in fact a real person but also that my only goals are to offer this podcast as an option for as many people as I can and to build a bit of community. I've been overjoyed with the response so far and have loved the conversations I've already been able to have. So thank you. Second, related to our readings this week, there are always a number of directions one could go with these readings. A clear thread appeared for me, but I should also mention that this week also seems to be about what's next. The first week of Easter dealt with the narrative of the resurrection event. Last week seemed to attempt to get our thinking straight on the event, or, as I mentioned, 
act as a bit of a Christian belief statement. This week, two themes seem to dominate the reading. Number one, what happens now, as in next steps and discipleship, they're clearly a large theme in the readings. And number two, the readings seem to be interested in highlighting the identity and character of God, especially through the person of Christ. Finally, I would like to just point out real quick that I have extended two of the readings this week to offer a little more context. I included some verses before the given passage in Revelation because it offers more of a well-rounded story. I also took the optional extension on the Acts passage for the same reason. But without any more setup, let's move into the readings for this week, for Sunday, May 5th, the third Sunday of Easter. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up, and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to Yahweh. O you, God's faithful ones, and give thanks to God's holy name. For God's anger is but for a moment. God's favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Yahweh, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Yahweh, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Yahweh, and be gracious to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Yahweh my God, I will give thanks to you forever.
Revelation 5, 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing, To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. John 21, 
1 through 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, Follow me.
Acts 9, 1-19a Meanwhile Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I have a clear connection for the text this week, but before I bring them all together through that lens, I want to begin with a couple of meaningful observations about the text in the fourth gospel, especially since the reading from John was the focus of the reflection last week. As I briefly mentioned last week, this chapter in the fourth gospel acts as the epilogue of the book. As such, it makes sense that one thing we see here is a sort of replaying of the entire redemptive trajectory of scripture in one story. To begin, in verse 7, P. 
Peter, upon realizing the person who has called out to them is Jesus, puts on some clothes. Because, you know, we all fish naked, right? This would actually appear to be a reference all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Later, in verse 15, after the meal, Jesus addresses Peter, calling him Simon, son of John. It's pretty easy to overlook the fact that this specific name had not been used by Jesus since the time when he first called Peter. This is the recalling of Peter to discipleship. Then, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus offers a threefold opportunity for Peter to counteract his threefold denial during the crucifixion. He is asked the same questions he was asked before he was told he would deny Christ and given the opportunity to answer again. This section ends with Jesus saying to Peter, follow me. A mentor of mine used to always like to remind me that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the translation of the word way is literally the path that unfolds before you. I am the path that unfolds before you. As I was preparing the reflection for this week, my mentor's voice kept recurring in my memory as I imagined Saul's conversion experience. But before digging into that comparison, there is a crucial aspect of Saul's conversion that must be noted. I worry, especially because the word conversion is often used, that we think of Saul's conversion something like a conversion from Christianity to Scientology as in, from religion to religion. In reality, I think a better metaphor would be something like Southern Baptist to Methodist or Lutheran, which, if that's your particular cup of tea, I would highly recommend, by the way. Though it's not a perfect comparison, it is much closer because we have to keep in mind that Christianity did not exist at the time. Certainly, there were followers of Christ, but generally they were a sect that remained within Judaism. So, put simply, Saul versus Christians is also known as Jews versus Jews. The persecution talked about here was a matter of conflicting Jewish sects, not conflicting religions. Well, why does that matter? Well, understanding this point may very well change the audience that relates to each character in this story. The Jews are the people of God, the God who Christians believe Christ is the incarnate revelation of. So, this isn't a battle of religious systems, it's a battle of competing realities. In essence, who is this God we follow? What exactly would this God call us to? Is it possible that God came into the flesh? Many questions come up, but they are in essence understood as being about the same God. After all, we all know that we have differing perspectives on the same God or differing perceptions of reality. Do you feel us headed back toward Back to the Future 2? Here is what I think often happens as conversion is imagined today. Converts to Christianity are immediately invited into a well-established system where a path to right living is laid out before them. People are urged to stay on the path with their eyes well down the path where Christ is standing at the end. Do not stray from the path, they say. Keep your eyes on Christ. We have laid out the path that leads to Christ. The problem is, this is exactly the opposite of Saul's conversion experience. Saul is walking down the path, both literal in the sense that you know he was on a road, 
and metaphorical in the sense that apparently he thought his killing of people was sanctioned by God. While walking the path, he encounters Jesus where the path that unfolded before him suggested a diversion. It is here that this zealous, murderous defender of Yahweh takes a blind leap toward a different understanding of Yahweh through Christ. Here's why I think Saul's conversion is quite hopeful for people who have been placed outside of quote normative Christian circles. Christianity has a long history of having a crowd mentality, which causes people to sprint down a path together while missing a turn that unfolded in front of them, or in the back to the future terms, skews in the timeline. The prophets in the Old Testament recognized that reality had often been corrupted. Just a few weeks ago, many Christians celebrated Jesus as he tried to march the reality of self-sacrifice through the middle of the alternate reality that people had created, which thought that he would violently overthrow the Romans. Then, Jesus challenges the reality of victory, previously seen as coming through might, by dying. So many of our heroes from Christian history could see the problem of competing realities between what the group had generally decided was the way of Christ and what their encounters with Christ told them. Luther, Kierkegaard, Bonhoeffer, that's just to name a few. When understanding the context, Saul's conversion tells the same story. It can't really be said enough. He thought he was following God. That was until he encountered God. In fact, one of the most dominant themes in scripture is the theme of people or persons who are called off the clear path ahead of them in order to venture out into the wilderness. I think that makes this conversion story particularly for the audience of Christians, not those who don't claim to be following Christ. Am I just splitting hairs here? I don't think so. In fact, I didn't intend for this to happen, but as I got into the text this week, I realized this isn't a bad overview of what postmodern theology is. Generally, postmodern theology is really just a collection of contemporary theological trends. The uniting feature of these trends is that they have all arisen because a group of people noticed that the path unfolding before them diverted from the systematized Christian path or they noticed that Christianity was operating in an alternate 1985 kind of way. All the liberation theologies, post-colonial theology, queer theology, post-liberal theology, feminist theology, and many others have all identified areas where the path we have been conditioned to see far off in the distance is actually a skew from the path that is unfolding before us. Saul's conversion story stands as an example of one who was encountered by Christ on his way down the systematized path. If the metaphor wasn't clear enough, we should take note of the fact that he was blinded. Nothing stops one from looking too far down the path more than losing, losing one's ability to see. So, if you feel like you've been pushed to the outside of Christian community because of your ideas, I hope you've explored the possibility that it's Christ who led you there. I know for me, I felt a ton of shame over my weird ideas. That was until I realized that the wilderness is where God calls people. Furthermore, I would encourage every person who identifies as a Christ follower in any way to look at your feet as you are wandering the path. A conversion experience may be just ahead of you. 
Remember the old footsteps poem where a person is walking with Jesus and the person notices two sets of footprints, but at some point there is only one. So that person inquires to Jesus about the single set and Jesus says, that was when I carried you. Well, I like to imagine that upon asking Jesus about the single set of footprints, he responds, yeah, that was when I turned and you decided to go on ahead and keep chasing the crowd. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. If you would like to connect with our work and see more content, join us at postmodernliturgy.com. To interact, we are Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook, at PM Liturgy on Twitter, and at Postmodern Liturgy on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, it's always helpful if you consider sharing the podcast and, especially, rating and reviewing it in your podcast app. And finally, I would love it if you would consider supporting our work at Postmodern Liturgy by becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. Just to highlight a couple relevant benefits, all the music on all the episodes of Postmodern Liturgy are written by me and recorded solely for the podcast. And if you sign up on Patreon at the $5 level, you get a free download of all the original music in this podcast at the end of each month. At the $10 level, you get access to that, plus access to worship planning resources related to the podcast, as well as small group discussion questions. There's also a $2 level if you would just like to show your support for the podcast. Thank you again for listening and engaging, and for the conversations I've had with people over this week and for your encouragement. And as always, enjoy the tension.